When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Hi, and welcome to the preview of our 11th season. I'm here with our producer, Graham Shedd. Hi, Graham. Hi there. And we've got a little preview of some of the shows we'll be doing in this season, and there's some terrific shows. Our first guest is Dr. Anthony Fauci, and we're talking in a conversation that was arranged by the 92nd Street Y. And we're talking about a podcast that I did for Audible called Soldiers of Science, a really interesting podcast, a four-episode podcast that's available now. And one of the people I interview on that show is Dr. Fauci. And briefly, what the story is, is one that's never been heard before by most people, which is that during the Vietnam War, all the doctors were automatically drafted as soon as they graduated med school. They were able, however, to apply to do their service in the public health service, and especially at the NIH if they were accepted by them. But only the cream of the crop were accepted. And it turned out to be an, un an unusual moment in the history of medicine in our country. It changed medicine completely. It's an amazing story. We'll hear a little bit from Dr. Fauci about what it was like for him as he got the chance to go to the NIH. Yes, he was doing his regular internship um, and uh, keeping his fingers crossed, I guess, that he might get a call. And then I got a phone call from a, someone who would ultimately be my mentor from Bethesda, Maryland, who was in the public health service and said, congratulations, we're offering you a position at the NIH, you will be a commissioned officer in the United States Public Health Service starting in July of 1968. Do you accept? <laughs> and I said, absolutely. <laughs> and that was it. So he had the chance now to apply for a particular kind of research. And interestingly, he chose the most basic research he could find. And what he experienced was not just basic research, but the, the element that made work at the NIH during that time so extraordinary. It was something that most researchers, probably all researchers at that time, didn't get to experience. And that was the benefit uh, of being in a laboratory that was housed right at the NIH hospital. It's called the 
NIH Clinical Center. It's the largest research hospital in the world. Mm. And that's where my lab was. That's where my mentor was. So I did have the extraordinary opportunity of, on the one hand, doing very basic research, but on the other hand, continuing to see patients on a daily basis. It was very, very unusual. You would have the wards here and literally within 25 feet around the corner from the hospital beds were the laboratories where we were doing our experiments. So it was a wonderful marriage between the bench and the bedside. I interviewed uh, more than a dozen of the scientists in that program who were physician scientists. They were so good at it that out of the approximately 2,000 doctors who were in that program, nine of them became Nobel Prize winners. So we have a joke among us. So there's, there's Mike Brown, Joe Goldstein, Harold Varmus, and Bob Lefkowitz, and Tony Fauci. The only dummy who didn't win a Nobel Prize was me. <laughs> so most of the time uh, during the podcast, uh, you talked about soldiers of science. But toward the end of it, we obviously and inevitably turned toward the uh, COVID crisis. And there was a critical question that you wanted to ask him. Here it is. Can I ask, when you get asked questions about herd immunity, is there any confusion about the two basic ways to get there? Herd immunity is not something we don't want to have. It's something we do want to have, but we don't right. want to have it by people dying. And Well, that's the point. You can get herd immunity the really painful way, and you can get herd immunity the much less painful way. The most painful way is that enough people get infected and sick that the, the majority of the population is now immune. The only difficulty is that we know now that already we only have about 10 to 15% of the population has been infected and we've already lost 300,000 people. If you want to wait until you get 70 to 80% of the population infected, you're going to lose a couple of million people. That's unacceptable. The way to get to herd immunity is to not allow people to get infected but to give them protection by a vaccine. So rather than having 70 to 85% of the people get infected, vaccinate 70 to 85% of the people. Then you get herd immunity and nobody's going to die from that. You know, one of the first things my wife Naomi and I talk about when we wake up in the morning is the bizarre dreams we just had and where on earth they came from. So I was very happy when one of our leading dream researchers, Robert Stickgold, uh, agreed to be on the show and have a conversation with you about the new book he's co-authored called When Brains Dream. Actually, if you remember, we spent a night at Bob's lab at Harvard Medical School, must have been, what, 25 years ago, when, when you were all rigged up with electrodes and tucked into bed with the idea of catching you dreaming. I remember it took me forever to fall asleep because of all it the did. electrodes. You had to spend the night watching the needles go on the on the recording machine, and I'm I'm just uh, staring at the ceiling. Well, well, you did eventually fall asleep at about four in the morning, and in fact, you did have a dream. Do you remember it? It was a dream about flying over Berlin, but without a plane, just in my pajamas. <laughs> yeah, you like called it a nightgown oh. <laughs> over Berlin. <laughs> I forgot that. Back then, 25 years ago, even Bob Stickgold couldn't tell us why we dream. But this time when you asked him if there's in fact a reason we dream. 
So it's now, I think, quite clear that, that dreaming actually serves a function. What we've learned over the last 20 years more generally is that sleep serves functions. It's very funny. If you go back to the 1990s and you ask sleep researchers what the function of sleep was, well, Alan Hobson said its function is to cure sleepiness, which isn't very helpful. But literally in the year 2000, we didn't have functions for sleep. What's very, very clear now is that the brain is working all night long to process the information we took in during the day. For every two hours we spend awake, wandering through the, the world, experiencing all the myriad things that we experience during the day, for every two hours of that, the brain simply has to shut itself off from that world for an hour to just stop and figure out what it means. It's very easy to see things and memorize things, and it's much harder to understand what they mean. And so it turns out that all of the memories that we're forming during the day are being brought back up during the night and being processed. We're extracting the meaning from them, if you will, while we sleep. And dreaming becomes a part of that. It turns out that there's certain cognitive function, certain processes that the brain doesn't seem to be good at or maybe able to do it all when it's not conscious. A lot of the processing of memory, just the strengthening of a memory or maybe the extracting of a pattern within a memory, it looks like the brain can just do sort of offline like a computer would do it. But if the processing of the memory that the brain wants to do involves constructing a narrative, doing a what-if, imagining how it might turn out if, if the individual did this or did that, the brain has to return to consciousness. That's the only state in which it can construct these narratives. And when we're conscious and we're asleep, that's called dreaming. And that's really what it's about. Later in the season, Alan interviews Penn Gillette, half of the Penn and Teller magic duo. And one of the questions Alan asked was the difference between an illusion and a magic trick. And if there was one he preferred over the other, his answer was fascinating because it has interesting political overtones. And philosophical, too. It, it, he really gets into... What goes on in our brain when we confront reality and when we confront reality gone haywire, which is what happens when we watch a magic trick? An illusion is something that looks one way and is really another. That happens uh, in the visual, uh, visual part of the brain. Uh, what I'm interested in is tricks, because tricks are intellectual. Uh, tricks are uh, ideas that you get someone to, usually, the more successful you are, get them to lie to themselves, get them to go down an alley. Uh, an illusion is often um, uh, everybody knows that the illusion is somewhere built into the box or some in the way it looks. A trick... Um, is an intellectual exercise that is automatically political 
because the trick instantly deals with one of the most important subjects we can deal with, which is how we establish what's real, how we agree on a reality. For me, doing tricks in a magic show is a playful epistemological experience. You are playing around in a safe zone with how we determine what's true. And uh, we have seen, I don't, no reason to get into this because I believe we all agree, but we've seen what happens when truth is played with on a real stage uh, in the real world with politics and so on. And it's horrific. But I believe that a playful dealing with how we determine what's true can then be used like most play in the real world. I mean, to put it in very blunt terms, if you come to see a Penn and Teller show and you say, if these two guys can make me think something that's that's patently not true, what can people with a real budget and with a lack of morals do? <laughs> I love the conversation we had with Emily Levesque. She's herself an astronomer and a wonderful writer, and gives us the details of what it's like in the daily life of an astronomer. And the details are so evocative. I I just love that. The book that she wrote, which is now out, is called The Last Stargazers. And as we'll hear in her next clip, uh, she interviewed a lot of fellow astronomers about the experience of waiting for the night to begin. People would describe watching the sunset or they describe hearing this grinding of the telescope dome turning or smelling stale coffee or the machine oil that's just in the walls. Um, observatories are such unusual places. And I knew there were places that the vast majority of my readers wouldn't have been to. So I wanted these sense details to kind of bring people to these places. Uh, for me, what I always loved was the afternoon and then evening right before observing started because it reminded me, um, I remember walking into an observatory dome in an afternoon before I was going to observe and thinking that it reminded me of a theater on the afternoon before a play because it's kind of dark and cool inside and, you know, maybe the door is open and you can see sunlight leaking in and there's a whole crew working on a telescope during the day. There's support staff at observatories that are crucial to these telescopes operations and they're checking instruments and making sure everything's working properly for when the stars arrive. It's a very, it was a very literal comparison. Um, I loved that when astronomers, when we describe our observing, we'll say, oh, I have a three night run. So we even use the same terminology as theater. But I loved that sort of wonderful waiting feeling of we're getting everything ready. We have our plan. We have our script. We know what we're going to do. And then watching the sun go down and watching the planet spin and getting ready to go inside and say, all right, now we're starting. So that's just, that's the moment I think when I and when many of my colleagues just really stand there and go, boy, this is a good job. When we talk about communicating and relating on this podcast, We often talk about how important it is to pick up clues from the other person as a kind of essential part of of communicating. What are they going through as we try to communicate with them? It kind of is important because otherwise we're not really talking to what's happening inside their head. We're talking to what we think might be happening. 
And Malcolm Gladwell told us a story from one of his books that illustrates in the deepest way, I think, how important it is to read one another well. Don't you think, Graham? Yes, his latest book is called Talking to Strangers, and he kicks off the book with a story which is a really tragic story of somebody misreading somebody else really badly. Here is a woman who was pulled over for no good reason, on the most trivial of pretexts, and his... What was the... What, it was an interesting thing. She pulled out... Was it a university that she was pulling yeah, out of? Yeah, she's coming out of a university in, in Texas, outside of Houston, in a small town. And the cop sees that she's got out-of-state plates, and she's a young black woman, starts to trail her, and then as does as police officers are trained to do. He, he pulls up behind her, and she moves over to let him pass and doesn't use her turning signal. So now he says, oh, aha, I had my pretext. And he stops her and says, ma'am, you didn't use the turning signal when you moved aside when I came up behind her. Now, that's nonsense, right? And so she is, she's had a, not the first time she's been stopped on a flimsy pretext by police officers. She's had a traumatic personal life over the previous year. So she is distressed. The officer reads her distress as some mixture of dangerousness and malice. Mm. And so the, the officer thinks, she's up to no good. She's going to pull a gun on me. She's a criminal. She's now, now smuggling we, drugs. We, we know what he was thinking because he reported that in, a, in testimony. Is that right? I mean, you're not just reading his mind. No, he, this is what he says afterwards. And I think there's something to that. The way he responds to her is so bizarre otherwise. He starts to almost immediately treat her as if she's some kind of criminal, as opposed to a woman coming from a job interview at a university. So he clearly massively misreads the situation. He's treating her as, as if she's a threat to society within 30 seconds of stopping her. And I, it, it is fundamentally a case of him rushing to judgment on the basis of a very faulty reading of her emotional displays. And that case is a lesson to all of us about how dangerous it is to rush to those kinds of conclusions about people based on such a noisy and inaccurate source of information. And it had a very bad ending. The, the, he, she was arrested and was put in jail for three days. And she ends up taking her own life, yeah. Yeah. Later in the season, Alan and I had the opportunity to recall a wonderful time we had about uh, 10 years ago, visiting the south of France and visiting sites where Neanderthals lived. And we learned a lot about Neanderthals, but we missed out one of the most important things, which is that we actually carry Neanderthal genes in us. We filmed that episode just before that discovery was made. Anyway, there's a woman who's written a wonderful new book called Neanderthals, Life, Love, Death and Art. She knows so much about Neanderthals, Rebecca Rag Stiles. And I'm very interested in Neanderthals because every time I take a DNA test, I find, when I keep taking them too, I find out that I'm connected to the Neanderthals in a way that makes me feel really good. I, I just, I just, I want to know more about my ancestors. So I was really interested in talking to Rebecca. And you asked her the inevitable question. Why did they go away? What happened? Well, I mean, technically they didn't go away because, <laughs> uh, um, you know, if you want to talk about extinction, they're still here. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but yeah, why do we not look like Neanderthals? You know, um, why why are we still around looking like us and, and they disappeared in that sense? Um, the answer is that we don't know. It may well be that um, there are, as I mentioned before, there's probably different factors happening in different regions um, at different points in time over the last sort of 10,000 years. You don't need a dramatic, like, massive apocalyptic thing to happen. All you need is for early Homo sapiens people to have a few more babies a year and Neanderthals to not, and for them both to, you know, be living in difficult, um, stressful, intensive lifestyles. And that difference will mount up over time. Um, you know, so it may just come down to, you know, what sound kind of boring demographic processes, basically, um, the ability to just have a couple extra babies a year um, for them to survive. Um, that might be all you need. So it sounds like our slogan at the time was make love, not war. Well, <laughs> certainly some of that was going on, yeah. <laughs> Graham, when we did Scientific American Frontiers together, the TV series, I think one of the enduring memories that I came away with was the time we interviewed Risa Sperling. And as I came out of the MRI machine where she'd been examining my brain, she would said to me, you have a plump hippocampus. And I, <laughs> I've been a hit at dinner parties with that story ever since. She said in the conversation you had with her this time that she has actually a picture of your hippocampus pinned up in her office. And she points it out to people to say, you know, do you think your hippocampus is bigger than Alan Alder's? Well, I'm actually <laughs> going to use that as my 8 by 10 from now on. I, I'm very, very proud of my hippocampus. <laughs> so after we revisited the hippocampus story with Risa, you asked her this. I've been meaning to ask you a, a kind of a personal question, and you can go into it as deeply as you feel comfortable. I saw that your grandfather and father yes. had Alzheimer's. I guess there are two questions, both kind of uh, kind of obvious. One is, did did that drive your interest in Al in Alzheimer's to do your research in that area? And the other one, the other question is, do you do you worry in a more personal way about your own the health of your own brain? Yeah, I I absolutely do. So the first one, um, my grandfather in particular did motivate my interest in Alzheimer's disease. Um, uh, I knew I was interested in the brain and I knew I was interested in memory even before I applied to medical school, but my grandfather developed symptoms right at the year actually that I was applying to medical school. And I really saw just a profound effect and he was my, you know, my favorite grandpa and it was really hard. Um, I, so I think that motivated, and I used to feel like I knew my dad and my aunt were at risk, but I thought, oh, I'll, you know, I'll make a dent before um, they are at risk. And so I have to say it was really hard when my father developed symptoms, and um, he died um, about three years ago now, and he was a really brilliant chemical uh, engineering professor and um, really struggled and went down very quickly once he got diagnosed. So it was very, it definitely motivates me. I actually have written on the board of my office, 
remember the reason you do the research because sometimes it's you get um, lost in the day-to-day and the hard things that make research um, challenging, but um, there's nothing like having seen it in your own family to motivate you. Um, your second question, I, I definitely worry about that. Fortunately, both my grandfather and my father really developed their symptoms in their very late 70s, mostly in their early 80s. So if I have their same genetic predisposition, I've got at least a few years left. But I do sometimes think of it as a a race. Um, You know, am I going to be able to make a dent, to be able to bring something in time if hopefully for myself, because I really don't want my kids to have to look after me the way many families have to look after um, their patients. And certainly watching what it did to my mom and my trying to take care of my dad, I, I don't want my kids and my husband to have to do that. But I'll say I I hope we're going to make a, a real dent before then. And if not for me, my generation, then definitely for the next generation. I was really glad to be able to connect again on the show with my friend Sanjeev Bhaskar. Sanjeev is a really wonderful and well-known actor uh, for our American audience. He's, he's known more in Britain than here, but you can also see him here on public television in his program, The Unforgotten. And we met when he asked me to be on his show once when I was in England, when I was in London, And uh, the show was The Kumars at Number 42, which was a a wonderful experience because the whole thing was improvised. And it was a talk show, a fake talk show, in which he was a rude host asking the most personal questions inappropriately. And it became the model of how not to do an interview. So it was was in a way training for for the podcast we do now. It was interesting to hear from Sanjeev how he began acting later in life, not as a kid. And I found, at least in my way of appreciating acting, I found that I enjoy the performances of actors who start a little bit later and have had the chance to get a lot of experience. Some of the most remarkable performances I've seen have come from people who didn't do it all their lives, but first lived a little. Here's, here's Sanjeev on that subject. I remember uh, being maybe three or four years old, and uh, some friend of the family came and said to me as a four-year-old, so, young man, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, actor. And my dad said, uh, it's pronounced doctor. <laughs> and uh, it didn't work, but uh, he denies it. But my mom was there, so she's, she's my witness. So, the, you know, my passion to, to be involved um, in this world was there from a really early age, but there was no real support. There was no route that I could see through to it. Um, and that came through after having some life experience. And I'm, I'm very grateful that it came that way around, I think. For me personally, I think had I kind of achieved great success at 18 or 20 or even younger now with with people vlogging on, on YouTube and being influencers and stuff like that, then I think I wouldn't have had the life experience to know that all of it was meaningless uh, and really would never be meaningful. And so I think by the age of 35, that those notions of wanting to be a star or all that kind of stuff, I think it disappeared from me. So I think that 
what I was left with was a, a yearning to work um, and to have a long career. It was that, and and how fortunate I was to to be doing what I loved uh, doing. And that's I, I'm never that I've never drifted far from that gratitude. Later in the season, uh, Alan has a conversation with a leading geneticist, uh, Eric Lander, who is the director of the Broad Institute in Cambridge and was a major figure in the Human Genome Project. Uh, and several of the episodes in this season, it turns out, have their roots in experiences that Alan and I had years ago when we were doing Scientific American Frontiers. And Alan had a famous encounter with Eric during that time. I don't know what came over me. You know, I was so so curious about Eric's work. And he was involved in something that was monumental, figuring out the human genome. And I really wanted to understand what he was telling me. And at one point, I grabbed him by both cheeks and shook his head. And I said, I'm not getting it. Tell me again. I'm so glad he's good natured because he's one of he's one not only one of our leading scientists, he's one of our leading communicators. So he he realized I wasn't getting it. And it was more important to get me to get it and to and to tell me, you know, follow me better. He, he changed the way he said it, and it was really good. But what he's been able to do in science is just amazing. Things have progressed so much faster than I think even he thought. If you had told me when we were finishing up the Human Genome Project, 13 years, $3 billion, that we'd be doing it at 600 bucks. And, and we'd be completing one new genome every nine minutes because we were doing many in parallel, I'd have said you were nuts. If, if you had told me that we would have millions of genomes sequenced, that we would have found 100,000 different genetic connections between spelling differences and particular diseases and traits, I, I, thought, I would have just thought that was unimaginable. And yet all that's happening. And it's gotten even better than that. It's gotten to the point where we can read out the, the genetic programs that are running in individual single cells. And there's only a finite number. I don't know what that number is, Alan, 10,000, 20,000, you know, programs that cells could run. But I would expect that in the coming decade or so, students will just, you know, have the lookup table and they say, oh, yes. This cell is running program number 997 that does the following things and works in the following ways. Just like, you know, in a computer, there, there's no surprising programs. They're all written. But evolution has a bunch of programs. We should know them all. Uh, we should be able to tweak them as needed. I think we're moving from the world of my biology in, in sophomore year of high school where everything was sort of, you know, memorizing a blizzard of details to recognizing that biology is finite, a finite number of genes, a finite number of cell types, a finite number of programs, and, and that the periodic table of biology will be as well known as the periodic table of chemistry. One of the things we do on Clear and Vivid often is to talk about other people's podcasts. And the one we talk about on this episode is called Unfinished Short Creek. And it's this amazing story. It has to do with a breakaway group of fundamentalist Mormons. The story is told by two people, Ash Sanders and Sarah Venter, who spent three years living among and nearby 
uh, with this organization and learned their story from them, had to get their trust in order to get them to talk openly about it. And one of the stories they found out about was Alyssa Wall's story. The story is, is remarkable, and it's in her own words. And it goes throughout the 10 episodes of Unfinished Short Creek. And it, in, Graham, I, I really admire the way John Delore did the sound design on this podcast because you, you really get a sense of being there. So we're going to play a clip from their podcast, in fact, the opening clip, where you not only hear the voice of Alyssa Wall and the beginning of her story, but you also hear our old friend John Delore's wonderful sound design. I was 14 years old when I was told that, that I was to be married. And at some point in my life, I knew that I was going to be married because that was the only path that I got as a woman. And I really did want it, but just not at 14. And Warren was the one that told me that I needed to move forward with this marriage because if I didn't, then I was no longer welcome in the community. And I found myself driving with my future husband and his family and my mother and Warren Jeffs and his posse of religious leaders to a dingy hotel where I was married to my first cousin inside of a hotel room. There was this moment where my mom stood up and took my hand because they couldn't get me to say I do. They couldn't get me to agree to this marriage. And she stood up and held my hand and just gripped it. And I had this overwhelming realization that it wasn't just my salvation hanging in the balance, it was hers. And it was my little sisters, and it was my older sisters, it was my entire family, and that we would all go to hell if I chose to fight this any longer. That day in the hotel, Elisa Wall chose not to send her entire family to hell. At age 14, she was married. So that's a taste of our coming season, season number 11. I hope you've been tempted to give it a try. I think these are wonderful podcasts, wonderful conversations with some of the most interesting people around. I look forward to your being there at the other end of the microphone. So long, Graham. So long. Um, We'll be back on January the 5th.